0: Food Network said that they're not for people who love to cook, but they're for people who love to eat. (laughs) And so we take a page from that. And so plant, you know, personal plants isn't for people who are plant medicine experts. It's for people that want to develop relationships with plants who feel that plants might contribute to their wellness. They don't really know where to start. They're going to kind of dip their toe in and kind of just get familiar with the plant world. And that's what we do.
1: This is Lit and Lucid, your after work de-stress smoke sesh podcast.
2: I'm your host Lit.
1: And I'm your host Lucid. And we're going to take you on a journey.
2: A journey to discover the truth and find the balance.
1: Every week we get deep on those thought-provoking topics that ooze out of the cannabis universe.
2: But we also keep it real by illuminating important issues and people in today's culture.
1: So kick back.
2: Consume your favorite cannabis products and get cozy Cozy in the the lit lit
1: and lucid lifestyle.
2: Welcome, everybody, to the Lit and Lucid podcast. We are here in season 14 of the show, you guys. I don't know how we've made it to over 140 episodes, (laughs) but here we are today. So thank you all for joining us and sessioning with us and tuning in every week. We really appreciate it. Today, we have Amanda Ryman. She has devoted herself to over two decades of her career to cannabis. She's trained as a social scientist, as one of the first to study the medicinal cannabis patient experience, and pioneered the idea that cannabis could be used as a substitute for opiates, alcohol, and other drugs. She's also a well-known activist as a leader in the Prop 64 campaign in California. Amanda is also the founder of Personal Plants, which is an online platform that's been deemed the food network for mushrooms and cannabis focused on providing education for consumers to grow therapeutic plants at home. Welcome, Amanda. We're super excited to learn more from you today. Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely, you know, we got a lot to unpack today and we're super excited to learn more about, you know, cultivating therapeutic plants at home and what all that entails and really uh, just more about, you know, what all goes into that and kind of what what things people can really grow at home. Uh, so excited for that a little bit later, but first we always like to get to know, you know, our guests a little bit more. And so we would love to know how you know, this all came about and where did your journey with cannabis first start and, and kind of end up here?
0: Well, that's a great question. Uh, so I grew up in the Midwest, in the 1980s and 90s where cannabis was very much prohibited. Um, but I also was somebody that was diagnosed with arthritis in my early 20s and was looking for alternatives to pharmaceutical drugs. I was very active, still am, very active person and was concerned at what 20, 30, 40 years of regular use of pharmaceuticals would do to my liver and my body. So I had used cannabis in high school, you know, sporadically in college, sporadically. So I really decided to investigate it as a medicine, and I found that it was extremely effective in um, anti-inflammatory properties, in pain relief, and helping me sleep. And I can honestly say that here 25 years later, had it not been for cannabis, I would not be in the condition I'm in today. I would most likely be dependent on pharmaceuticals for my pain relief and and for anti-inflammatory properties. I probably would not have the same physical health, mobility, energy that I do today and so that made me really interested in the history of cannabis and really how it became illegal. Now, of course, these were in the days before the internet. So it was not very easy to find out the truth about drugs because <laughs> the only thing we had was D.A.R.E. and our textbooks from school. And so it was really in college when I started doing finally doing research on drug policy that I found out that it was all a sham, Uh, that it was created with one goal, which was to marginalize and control and imprison minority populations. And I became really angry thinking about the number of people that could have benefited from cannabis and not only didn't have access, but in some cases were imprisoned for their process of using cannabis as a medicine. So I really wanted to study this. Um, I also felt that as a woman, quite honestly, unless I had PhD after my name, it was going to be hard to be taken seriously, especially when talking about drugs, which are considered to be a very frivolous topic anyway. So I moved out to California in 2002 to start the PhD program at UC Berkeley, and I ended up doing my doctor. Doctoral dissertation on medical cannabis dispensaries in the Bay Area in the awesome. early 2000s. And this was really the result of my own experience as a medical cannabis patient in California and my understanding and observation that the early medical cannabis dispensaries operated much more as health service providers than they did as Apple stores in what we see today. And so I really wanted to capture this idea that cannabis was a community health issue that it wasn't about frivolousness, that it was about intentionality, that it was about healing. And even though I absolutely support adult use, I do believe at the heart of it, cannabis is a therapy. It is not a vice. And so I've really dedicated my career to speaking up on behalf of the plant um, and helping people understand that cannabis is something that can add a lot of benefit to your life. It absolutely comes with its risks. But it's not the kind of thing to just be taken lightly. And I feel that way about all entheogens, um, including cannabis, psilocybin, and, you know, the whole list of plants that act as soul and spiritual healers.
1: Wow. (laughs) You know, what is crazy about this is that we just, you know, Lucy and I did a podcast, what, three or four podcasts ago on mental health and just conscious consumption is because, you know, a lot of the things you just pointed out about maybe the path that, that our, uh, you know, the cannabis industry has taken lately about, you know, it's all about just high potency, high THC, just get high. we we see the same thing. We feel like the therapeutic potential just really got lost in the whole shuffle when that was really what started this whole movement. And really what the plant has to bring to the table the most is this therapeutic aspect. So just want to say, first off, you know, what you hit on is absolutely the truth. And we could back that up as well. And, and uh, that's pretty cool that, you know, the PhD out there is like taking this shit seriously. And like, let's, Let's steer this in the right direction.
2: I'm curious about that. Like, what was the climate like back then when you said you were going to do your dissertation on cannabis? Because I know academia even today and the taboo around cannabis. So I can only imagine, you know, almost 20 years ago what it was like.
0: Well, I I was very fortunate because I was at UC Berkeley, (laughs) and I often (laughs) say that if there was any university in the country that was going to break the the grass ceiling, so to speak, when it came to cannabis research, it was going to be Berkeley. And so they were very supportive of my research. I also think because I was in the Department of Social Welfare and social work as a profession takes a very hard stance around issues related to social justice, uh, that they were very happy to have someone addressing this area. Area that was really, you know, up and coming in California at this time. But we knew that it was the pioneering of something really big. So I definitely had the first cannabis study to go through the internal review board at Berkeley. <laughs> um, they had to bring in an outside consultant in order to approve it. And at my graduation, they announced the name of your dissertation when you walked across the stage. And mine had cannabis in the title. And the woman in the audience next to my mom turned to her friend and said, well, of course, Berkeley would have a cannabis dissertation. (laughs) And yeah, you know, because it was a really big deal what was happening in the Bay Area 15, 20 years ago. And it was really going to set the stage for a huge social and political shift in this country Mm -hmm. around not just cannabis, but the broader world of plant medicine. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So very true. Yeah. And I think I think just setting that stage early was really paramount to a lot of this because you know we just see how quickly things can change on a day-to-day basis in the cannabis industry as it is so I think having that at the ground level of like coming out and addressing that you know the reasons why cannabis might have been illegal in the first place isn't just because of all these things that maybe we're taught, or that it's it's dangerous and reefer madness. A lot of it was, you know, these racial disparities and, and uh, you know the economic stuff and and just you know pharmaceutical companies and you know big business and big ag and all these different you know elements that kind of combined uh, to cause prohibition. Uh, that's the truth. And then, you know, the 60, 70 years since that happened uh, has caused a lot of harm and, and we can't just, you know, legalize the drug and then be like, well, there you go. You know, I think there's a lot of work that still has to be done in the trenches to, to repair a lot of the, the things that have gone wrong. And so I think that's great just to recognize that first of all, and then to kind of use that as to build a foundation. Um, what would almost be what 20 years ago now? That's great.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because. Uh, A lot of folks say, well, the war on drugs is a failure. The war on drugs is a failure. And if the goal of the war on drugs was to reduce drug use, then yes, the war on drugs is a failure. But that wasn't the goal of the war on drugs. The goal of the war on drugs was to incarcerate in great numbers certain sectors of the population and to put control of the drug market firmly in the hands of the pharmaceutical companies. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, the drug war has been extremely successful. And so, you know, I think that we have to realize that the goal of that war was never, ever, ever to reduce drug use. And when you realize that, you start to think, okay, so then, If the answer to drug use isn't criminal justice, what is it? And I think that's where we're starting to see states like Oregon move with complete drug decrim laws saying it's not a criminal justice issue. And it never should have been. And it really should be rightly in public health.
1: Mm -hmm. I like that. That makes sense. Well, that kind of segues really nicely into like you're still battling that fight today. Really still fighting the good fight today, Um, essentially kind of against that same model that is kind of held it down with, you know, I don't think. You know, as safe stuff keeps legalizing, we still keep having to have this conversation of incorporating, uh, you know, grow your own laws with cannabis. And then now we're getting to the point of, you know, mushrooms are starting to become, you know, legal in places. And there's no framework set up for, you know, selling these things or dispensaries or licensed cultivations. And so a lot of people are kind of left to their own whim to have to cultivate these things and have them available for themselves. And so um, you're still in the thick of it. We're still in the thick of this war on drugs. We're still, you know, unpacking it. Uh, So let's talk about the basics. You know, where did the idea first come from um, with trying to promote, you know, cultivating, uh, you know, these entheogens and cannabis and different plants, medicinal plants at home?
0: Well, I believe that growing a plant and eating it is a right. It's a human right. I mean, just very, very basic. No matter what you think about politics, no matter which side you're on, no matter what you think about plants versus pharmaceuticals, whether you're vegan or a meat eater, like wherever you are everyone should agree that if I want to stick a seed in the ground and grow a plant and put it in my mouth, that that should be my right to do so. And that nobody should tell me that I don't have the right to do that or try to legislate or regulate my right to do so. And when it comes to food, you know, if the government suddenly came and said, no one can grow tomatoes anymore, and you can only get your tomatoes from this store, and it costs $50,000 to get a license to open a tomato store, and you have to pay 30% sin tax, on your tomatoes now, so now they're going to be $50 for half a pound, people would be outraged. They would say, you can't do that. That, That's my right. If I want to grow a tomato, I've been growing tomatoes for 50 years. But when it comes to plants that we think may have an effect on our behavior, all of a sudden, all of that's out the window. And so what I want to do is help people realize that the right to grow your own food is no different than the right to grow your own tobacco or the right to grow your own hemp or the right to grow your own ayahuasca. Like all of these things are plants that we have the fortunate privilege to interact with here on earth. And and it's no different than trying to legislate how people grow and consume food. And so at Personal Plants, we're saying, let's extend this idea of growing your own food to other entheogens. And the public isn't really that familiar with what an entheogen is. especially not the fact that there's a lot of entheogens that are house plants that we see all over the place that have DMT in them and other spiritual molecules in them. And so a lot of this is educating people that these aren't these crazy, strange plants that are in some far off land. These are part of our everyday existence. And the more we can interact with them, the better we're going to have respect for them, the more mindful we're going to be about the consumption of them. Because people that have grown their own food will tell you it does institute a mindfulness of your consumption because you spent a lot of time and energy growing that plant. And to just eat it without thinking about it is like doing the plant uh, an injustice. And so we want to help people develop those relationships with other types of plants as well.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that. So we are like strong proponents of that. We love like supporting small farmers and like growing your own. Uh, So I have a couple of questions. Like one, do you feel like there should be still like restrictions on that? Because I know like here in Colorado, you can only grow six plants. So do you feel like there should still be a regulatory framework around that or no? I'll start with that.
0: So I think a lot of that regulatory framework is born out of fear that if we let people grow too many personal plants, they're going to end up diverting it into the unregulated market. And I get why that fear exists in a state like California, where you have so much unregulated cultivation happening that people, you know, back in the medical cannabis days, you would have someone growing 99 plants, and then they would just have a list at their door of a bunch of names that were the patients they were growing for um, when you knew that wasn't reality. So, like, I understand the theory behind restricting home growth. That being said, I think it's a false premise. I think by and large, nobody's growing enough to divert it to any kind of unregulated market. You know, maybe they're giving really bomb ass Christmas gifts this year because they've grown (laughs) so much cannabis. But the amount of of work that it would take Mm -hmm. to get that product to the point where it would compete with a commercial product that's been tested and packaged and that you could, you know, sell enough of it in order for it to make a business this doesn't really make sense. So I think you should be able to grow what your property allows, just like every other plant. You know, if I live on 10 acres, I should be able to grow more tomatoes than you on a quarter of an acre because I have more land than you. And that holds more plants. So I think it's personal consideration. Like, where do I live? If I have 20 cannabis plants in my backyard, is someone going to come steal them? Um, so it, it's going to be personal consideration. But I don't think that the government should come up with those arbitrary limits um, because I think it's born out of fear. There's no evidence that allowing people to grow as much personal cannabis as they want, when it's truly personal, that that's somehow putting anyone in harm's way.
2: I, I totally agree and understand that. Next question is, so is part of your motivation for the Grow It Your Own at Home you know, like combating the Monsantos of the world where like people are growing bad food and these farmers are being controlled and, you know, there's pesticides and things like that. Is this all this argument also rooted in like organics?
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. i, I published a, bro- a blog recently um, about looking at industrialized agriculture as lessons of why we need to protect home grow, and I do have a concern that we're going to see the commoditization of plant medicine to where it's no longer this nutrient rich, amazing plant. It's this McDonald's version, and once we see that happen, if we take a lesson from food and from alcohol what we're going to find in economically vulnerable communities are products that are extremely cheap to make, are very, very high potency, and are targeted at the heaviest consumers. And that's not what we want to see out of plant medicine. So I'm hopeful that maybe the interest in organics, in small food, in regenerative farming will steer plant medicine away from that. But if it doesn't, I want people to have an alternative pathway. I always want someone to be able to say, you know what? I don't like what the commercial system is doing with this product. I want to grow it on my own. And everyone should have that right. If you look at the tobacco plant and the entheogenic properties of the tobacco plant versus a cigarette, it's a really cautionary tale of what can happen when we just completely relinquish control over that medicine to capitalism.
1: I think, you know, what's kind of crazy about this whole thing is the fact that, you know, before we even had a legal market, people were already having illegal grows. And like, how do you think people were smoking cannabis and transporting it and getting it from California to New York? And I mean, it was already happening. And so the craziest thing with all this is then legalization happens and we feel that this plant's now legal and we're liberated and it's available. But then like you said, there's a 30% tax on it, so it's overcharged. And then on top of that, we have these restrictions of like, now we can only grow six plants at a time and they have to be inside and in a locked area or whatever. And so to me, it almost feels like we went from almost like a more open market when it was illegal to now it's like way more restricted as a legal market when the whole premise of all this was like, it's an effing plant. Like what are we doing here? This can <laughs> grow naturally on its own without even human, you know, touch. It could just grow on the side of the road if it wanted to, just with the seed. And so uh, it just seems so kind of backwards in a way of of how we've more kind of made it more restrictive, I guess, for people to consciously consume these things. Cause I'm even thinking about the people who are going to take the time um, to grow like ten to twelve plants for their for their own consumption and, and say if they grow them outdoors you have one season to do it and that's going to last you a whole year and these people are also going to be consciously consuming it so essentially you're just laying laws on top of these already you know conscious and law-abiding citizens and hampering them while the person who was already growing illegally for the past 30 40 50 years is just going to keep growing illegally and these laws didn't do nothing but hurt you know law-abiding you know conscious people
0: Well I think that's a really good point point. and I think what you're really bringing up is the idea which is true. That legalization and regulation are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about legalization, we're talking about removing criminal penalties. Right. So that's legalization. Taxes are not part of legalization. Licenses are not part of legalization. The only part that is part and parcel to legalization is you no longer go to jail for this. Um, You know, this is not going to ruin your permanent record. Um, That's legalization. And, you know, I definitely was involved in cannabis prior to legalization. I started growing in the mid 90s in Chicago, but I'm also a white person. So prohibition was not as threatening for me as it was for other people. And so I have to recognize that legalization wasn't as important for me because I was still able to continue doing what I was doing before. But it's really important to people who are more likely to be impacted by criminal justice. So I think like legalization is one thing. And then you have the question of, okay, now we've legalized this thing, like we've basically removed the criminal penalties for associating with it. How do we control it? <laughs> and that's where regulation comes in. And the interesting thing about prohibition is when I was doing education around legalization for like moms, mostly like PTA style people, they still had this belief that prohibition gave you control over what was happening. (laughs) But as you just described, under prohibition, they didn't really control anything. Mm. Like cannabis was kind of flying around and depending on your privilege, it was flying around a little bit more or a little bit less. There were no rules. I mean, we had that in California for 20 years, Um, but that's not control over anything. So you give that up. Once you get regulation, that's the control part. Uh The United States is never going to have legalization without regulation. So you see some countries like Spain, for example, you know, they're pretty much in this nice middle spot. They remove criminal penalties for cannabis, but they don't have a commercialized system. They have social clubs. They have co-ops. They have very much kind of like the early medical cannabis in California days model because Spain will do that. The United States... The idea that we would legalize cannabis and then not make people get a license to sell it or not make it be tested or not tax it. I just don't think it's realistic in the way United States does things. Um, You know, you're out in Colorado. I'm actually moving to Colorado uh, next month. Awesome. And California way over regulates everything, (laughs) cannabis and everything else. So I think that, you know, I would love to see less regulation, but I also know the United States. Right. Yep. And I know that because of liability and how everyone likes to sue everyone, the idea that you could have um, available cannabis without making sure that, like, if you get sued, someone's held responsible. Yeah. Not gonna happen.
1: <laughs> yeah. And then that was kind of, you know, and I and I hate to kind of add more here, but, you know, we're heading into this, you know, this er- this era with, you know, psychedelic medicine becoming at the forefront and uh, we already see pharma lining up and uh, they're ready. And I, and that's just what worries me is that, you know, people in the culture are always like, no, 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 this isn't going to be cannabis. It's going to be free. And we're going to, you know, decriminalize it and make it legal. And i just sit and watch it as like, we did the same thing with cannabis and look where cannabis is at now We we have 30% taxes. We got a ballot measure. We're going to, Lucy and I are going to vote on tonight of uh let's raise cannabis tax 5% in Colorado. And we're both looking at each other like, what the hell? For what, you know? And, uh, and so that's just the reality we live in with cannabis. We've watched it go from being something that um, we wanted to be liberated and wanted it to be free and accessible. And we're almost going the exact opposite direction of making it even more inaccessible in the legal market by overpricing it. And then on top of that, I just read um, in Oakland, they had these social equity programs they built out for um, really the, you know, the, the racial disparities and, and the issues that have happened over the years. And, and they gave these uh, they gave funding. Um, to get, you know, black and brown businesses like up and going and, and get them a chance to go in the market. And half of these now are almost defaulted on their loan. And they're just remarking that it's hard to compete with corporations that could just hand over fist, you know, just throw cash at their business until everybody around them fails. And then these corporations just go and buy these failing businesses up for rock bottom prices. Now they've got 200 dispensaries. And so that's just kind of what we're watching. And it it just feels like we're just blanketing the same thing into psychedelics now. And that's just what worries me is we're going to go from um, the thought of like, we're legalizing it. We're making these available um, to they're only available if you go the pharmaceutical route and pay, you know, a pretty hefty prescription charge or have to go to a, you know, a a center or something and bill your insurance or something.
0: Well, I will comment on Oakland because I told them this was going to happen. So I used to be on the Cannabis Regulatory Commission for the city of Oakland when they were designing the equity program. And I am on record many, many, many times saying it's not enough to just hand someone over a license Definitely. and give them a little money. You have to help them be a successful business. And my concern with Oakland's problem from day one, that they're just giving people heads up in line so that they can get a license, but they weren't doing anything To ensure that they were going to be successful businesses. And then exactly what I said happened, happened. These businesses were not successful because it's really hard to run a successful business for anyone. And, you know, the idea that because you had a cannabis arrest means that now we assume you know how to run a successful business just didn't make sense to me. And I know that there were organizations like the the incubator and Supernova Women in Oakland that were trying really, really hard to help these businesses succeed. But at the end of the day, if they didn't have the city really giving them advantages, like not having to pay fees, not having to pay taxes, like things that were going to give them longevity, I really didn't have much hope for them succeeding. And the reality is, I think, you know, a lot of younger folks now talk about this as being a post-capitalism time, And I think that what's happening with cannabis is kind of like a microcosm of the collapse of capitalism, Mm -hmm. right? Because in the 80s, if we had set up this system, everyone would have been fine with it. And the people that weren't fine with it would have had no voice at all. And then even with the tech boom in the early 2000s, like we saw who made money and who was successful from that. So now we're coming into this next kind of boom situation where you have this new industry. There's tons of money to be made and things are proceeding as usual, like they did with the stock market in the 80s and they Uh did with the tech boom in the 2000s. But the difference is that now you have a bunch of people saying, wait a minute, this isn't right, because as you pointed out, this industry was built on the backs of people who took great risks to provide cannabis. And so it's not right to treat them like this. And it's not right. But are those voices loud enough? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I see a lot of large corporations. I see a lot of consolidation in cannabis. I do think that one of the things we have going for us with psychedelic medicine is I actually think that the the ability for big pharma to, to participate will help kind of bifurcate that industry in the way that cannabis was never able to do. Like, there are pharmaceutical benefits from psilocybin, and I do think those benefits should be studied clinically. I think they should be made into a standardized product that everyone can take, that my grandma would feel comfortable going and getting from her doctor, that her insurance will reimburse her for. Like, yes, I believe in that. I also believe in that for cannabis, but it ain't going to happen because of the way the FDA rules are around plant medicine. Psilocybin, it can absolutely happen, but... I think at the same time, we need to protect home cultivation. We need to protect social sharing. We need to protect community use because there's going to be folks that only want to get their medicine that way. And I think that where we end up messing up is when we say it's either going to be pharmaceutical or mass produced. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's kind of where we are with cannabis. I mean, one of the other things that makes psychedelics not as vulnerable to that is that people just can't use psychedelics as often as they use cannabis. So where you have people going into a dispensary every single day and using cannabis multiple times a day, you know, psychedelics are not a multiple times a day product Mm -hmm. and they're not something that people are either going to do every weekend, most likely. So it may not lend itself to the same marketing and commercialization, which may make it more appealing to either the social sharing market or the pharmaceutical medical market and maybe not so much that, like beer mm-hmm. and alcohol market.
2: Yeah. yeah. No, I love that you broke it down like that because that's yeah. a topic that Jared and I keep bringing up because we've talked to some, you know investors that are like have like hedge funds for like psychedelics and then we've also talked about some people like working on the ground like for dispensaries in Oregon for psychedelics so it's like we've seen both sides and I kind of like how you're like I get both sides too because I feel the same way I like understand it but we're finding a happy medium but what I think was really more important in this whole topic is what you said about how people aren't using psychedelics every day. Uh, Also in that episode that Jared and I talked about mental health, we were talking about like the prevalence of influencers just out there online telling everybody like, I'm microdosing, like you should microdose. And we had the conversation where it's like, there's not really like education behind that. Like, do people really understand why they're microdosing? Should everybody be microdosing? Should you be consuming like that? Like every day, like what, what is happening here? And so I think that there definitely needs to be more education behind that. And like you said, if it's not like this dispensary mode where it's like every day people are going in and buying mushrooms because mm-hmm. like that doesn't even make sense, that would kind of curb that appeal, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, businesses want to make money, plain and simple, mm-hmm. right? So if they don't see an opportunity to make a lot of money off of customers, then they're really not going to, you know, I, what I'm seeing a lot more in the psychedelic space, in addition to the biomedical stuff are like the ancillary businesses that help guide people through experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think at the end of the day, businesses might find that there's a lot more money in the assistance of psychedelic therapy than there is in the actual products that people are using in psychedelic therapy. You know, mushrooms are fairly easy to grow and you can grow a lot of them. I mean, and they're already everywhere. I mean, you know, it's not like you really need companies to come up with these very specific mushrooms. Um, You know, the way you do have, you know, thousands of cannabis brands. Mm-hmm.
1: I like that. I like, you know, that was a great answer, by the way, because it put me at ease, really. And I think the big piece I got out of that is that we're not going to follow the same path that cannabis took. It's unique on its own. And I think it should be treated as a unique kind of area that kind of has to kind of follow its own path and, and create kind of a framework for itself because it's not cannabis. And so I think that was just the biggest thing I took from it of like, It ain't cannabis. Let's just stop treating it like cannabis. Of course, there's some crossovers. Of course, there's going to be some people that cross over some, maybe some regulations that cross over, maybe some processes and cultivation stuff. But and by and large, it's a very unique thing and it should just be treated as its unique self.
0: Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, cannabis and mushrooms are both entheogens. So they both have spiritual properties. But I see a lot of folks who I know from cannabis just say they're going to hop over to mushrooms. And, you know, I don't know if I like that because (laughs) I don't want the same thing to happen that I see with cannabis. And I don't want people to think, no, the next thing is I'm going to make this big mushroom brand. Um, You know, I don't think they're the same thing. And I'm hoping that as society becomes more used to these plants, um, they'll understand that they are so different just because they've been lumped together by the government as something to be feared doesn't mean they're all the same. Personal plants is out there to help people develop individual relationships with individual plants so that you understand which plant in the queendom is best suited for you and your energy. And that's like part of the most amazing thing of all of this is when you figure that out. Um, and then plants will really enrich your life.
2: Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit more because I feel like we like brushed on the fact that you founded personal plants, but I really want to talk about <laughs> it because I was looking at your website and I feel like what you're doing is really amazing. But I also like feel like deep inside, like the angst of like you going against Goliath. You know what I mean? Like you're really like fighting the good fight. And I know how hard that is. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you guys do and how consumers can get more involved in this movement.
0: No, absolutely. You know, I look at the Food Network and what I saw it do for people cooking at home. And when I was growing up, if you didn't have a chef in the family or your parents didn't own a restaurant... Like, no one was teaching you to cook at home. Like, I wasn't cooking, like, curry and, you know, all (laughs) kinds of things in the kitchen in Indiana. Like, you know, growing up, we had, like, Shake and Bake and Hamburger Helper. Mm -hmm. Um, And then it was, like, the Food Network that was, like, no, this is for everyone. You don't have to be a chef in order to make international cuisine. And they really brought these personalities that made it really accessible. It was, like, your friend in the kitchen with you. And so taking a lesson from that, I started to think, what would help make plant medicine more accessible to people and help them develop the same kind of relationship with their plant medicines as they do with their food. So taking a lesson from that, I thought, you know, what did Food Network do? So I put together a group of amazing women who all have great voices in the plant medicine space. And I asked them to talk to us about their work, to um, educate us with their recipes, and to really bring it home to a way where even if I don't feel like I want to identify as a cannabis or mushroom consumer, I don't feel like I have to do that in order to access personal plants. So, you know, Food Network said that they're not for people who love to cook, but they're for people who love to eat. (laughs) And so we take a page from that. And so plant, you know, personal plants isn't for people who are plant medicine experts. It's for people that want to develop relationships with plants who feel that plants might contribute to their wellness. They don't really know where to start. They're gonna kind of dip their toe in and kind of just get familiar with the plant world. And that's what we do. And we focus specifically, like I said, on entheogens, which are plants that invite the divine within. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're spiritual healing plants. And so I feel right now people are seeking out the opportunity. For that kind of spiritual relationship, even though more people are atheists now than have ever been before. And so it's like, what will those spiritual relationships look like? And I think there's a real opportunity here to introduce plants as a way to make that connection.
2: Yeah. I love that. I teach cannabis yoga as well. And so that's what we totally do is just like connect with the plant spirit and just have like mindful consumption and awareness. And I do. I think people are coming more to it. I mean people leave our class and they're like, Oh my gosh, that was like an amazing experience. I wasn't even like really aware of that. And I think that if you can create that connection with people and they could do it at home and you know they don't have to go somewhere and be out there like, Oh, I'm a cannabis consumer, that's really where you're gonna have your impact. And that's also how that movement's gonna keep growing, you know what I mean? Like they might just call their friend on the DL and be like, hey, like I'm doing this. And, you know, they get to see it and be around it as well and keep, you know, just moving along slowly but surely. And every more people will be more into it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, y'all are in Colorado, I'm in California. We can forget sometimes how it feels to not be able to talk about cannabis with your community. And I was in Idaho in June doing Mm. a conference. And, you know, cannabis is extremely illegal in Idaho. And so many people came up to me and said, I don't even feel comfortable Googling questions about cannabis (laughs) because I'm afraid that my kid's teacher is going to find out or my boss is going to find out. And so just not even being able to access that information. Later on tonight, I'm doing a talk to an assisted living facility out here in the Bay Area. <laughs> and I'm teaching them how to cure their cannabis because a lot of them <laughs> grow it. And so we've already done a trim lesson and so tonight we're talking about curing. That is so um, fun. But it's so great to be able yeah. to talk with folks and just watch these relationships develop in the first time they harvest, how excited they are to see what they've produced for themselves. And so just the opportunity to give those skills to people so they can have that experience is just a really a blessing. That's cool.
2: amazing.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say it's almost like uh, like cultivating the plant and the herbs is almost therapeutic in itself as well.
0: A hundred percent, it is. Oh yes, studies on gardening have shown that even the act of being out with plants lowers blood pressure. It lowers stress. It helps with sleep. Obviously, it's exercise when mm-hmm. you're out there. You know, tending to the plants. Um, So it is absolutely a therapeutic activity. And in the early medical cannabis days, a lot of the gardens were tended to by the patients. Mm -hmm. And that act of tending to the garden was part of the therapy, especially for people that were facing end of life. And this ability to see something grow, to be a part of that life cycle was extremely important.
2: Well, and plants also have spirits as well. I know like ancient, you know, like Native American cultures, like they've connected with plant spirit forever. And so if you could also in tune in that, I know like, you know, if you're taking mushrooms or something, you're a little bit more in tune. I know Michael Pollan talked about that in his book where he was outside talking to the trees and they were speaking to him. And that's very real. And, you know, that's just even creating that relationship even deeper when you're creating and growing your own plants and working with them through that whole process. And then being oh, able yes. to consume at the end. So cool.
0: Yes. You exchange that energy and the plants are talking to us. It's just that we aren't usually in a place where we can hear them. And so, you know, slowing down and caring for a plant is one of the best ways to learn how to actually hear plants talk to you. And once you hear it, then you kind of learn how to pick up on what other plants are saying. And it really opens up this whole world of how, because we know plants communicate with each other. There was the great, I think it was like a YouTube channel where this guy had hooked up these machines to mushrooms and the mushrooms were talking to each other. And it was the machine was picking up the sounds that the mushrooms were making to each other. It was amazing. How it was cool amazing. That? That's so
2: cool.
1: <laughs> well, I know what I'm doing tonight. <laughs> I'm going to find that video. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah,
0: just Google like mushrooms talking to each other and I'm sure it'll come
1: up. <laughs> That's so fun. Well, this has been like super enlightening for us and a really fun conversation. And I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the show, but you know, what do you think the future of plant medicine looks like?
0: Well, I think that's up to us. I think that's up to us. I think the plants are putting a lot of um, a lot in our hands, a lot of responsibility. Uh, you know, the, a lot of these plants haven't been looked at twice in decades, maybe not hundreds of years. And so what happens next is up to us. Um, we can either go the way we go with everything else in this culture, and we can just extract, 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 and consume, consume, consume until there's nothing left. Or We can listen to what the plants want, which is to have a symbiotic relationship. We can grow them and consume them, but we don't want to take advantage of them. And I do believe that if you plan on consuming entheogenic plants for spiritual purposes, you have a responsibility to learn how to propagate and grow them because we do want to replenish supply. We don't want to just take it away. So if we do this right, we will end up with a higher abundance of entheogenic plants than we have now. And a society that has reached a new level of consciousness because they know how to respectfully interact with these plants. If we don't do it right, it's going to be like Coca-Cola made ayahuasca brew at the corner of bodega. And we will have passed up this opportunity. And, you know, not to get too hippy-dippy, but the plants will be very sad. If we do that, because that's not what they want. They want this opportunity. To lead us into this next stage of consciousness. And if they aren't able to fulfill that destiny because we just won't get over ourselves, I think that they'll be very sad. And I don't know when the next time will be that they'll put their trust in humans again.
1: That's good stuff. Yeah, I think the lesson here is that like we are trying to ascend our consciousness and like grow up a bit as a species. So let's do it. Let's stop living in the past.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, Amanda, this was all really cool and enlightening. I appreciate you sharing all your knowledge with us. Uh, We do have one final question, though. We are the Lit and Lucid podcast. So are you lit or are you lucid? I say I'm pretty lit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Perfect. That's fun. That's <laughs> pretty good.
0: It's like my normal state of being. <laughs>
1: That's, That's awesome. awesome. We need it. We need that energy. You yeah. are absolutely <laughs> a blessing to really the earth and everybody around it. And especially, and you know, we're very grateful to have you working in the cannabis and, and kind of psychedelic spaces with us. So how can people find out more about your company and about you and, and reach out if they have more questions?
0: Sure. Um, so our website is mypersonalplants.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram on Personal Plants. We're also on Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, all the places that we're not allowed to be, but are anyway. <laughs> um, and then, if anyone has any questions, you can totally reach out to me. My email is amanda at mypersonalplants If you have questions about entheogens, if you want to grow entheogens, so we're working on a new project. We're actually going to be making entheogenic plant cuttings available for cultivation oh. because these plants are actually legal to cultivate, including ayahuasca and poppy. They're just not legal to process. So, in the idea of people developing relationships with plants without consumption being the end goal, we're going to be making uh, cuttings available to people. So, um, if you are interested
2: in that, feel free to reach out to me. Very That's cool. Awesome. All right, you guys, with that, I'm Lit.
1: I'm Lucid. And that's it. Laters.